So this morning, we have an opportunity to hear uh, from our brother Thomas Robinson preach to us. And uh, we're in the middle of a series called uh, To the Ends of the Earth. And it's just talking about the, the, the call of the gospel to, to send us out and to preach the good news to the nations and to the world around us. And last week, our brother Severin gave us the call to foreign missions, that we should cross borders and seas to, to get the gospel out to the, to the world around us. But part of the Great Commission is also to plant churches uh, where, in the city where we find ourselves. And if you think about what Jesus said and what uh, the call was in Acts 1-6 to go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Judea and to the ends of the earth, there probably is nowhere farther from Jerusalem than Portland, Oregon. This is the ends of the earth. And so the call of Jesus and the spread of the gospel has, has made it to the other side of the globe, has made it to the other side of the planet. A quick history on why Thomas is here this morning. About six years ago, a brother showed up to this church and his wife, Trevor, and Jess Binkley with a desire to plant a church. And he had been assessed by Acts 29, and they gave him a thumbs up to, to go ahead and plant a church with one condition, that he needed to hang out with another church plant for a little while and to sort of learn the ropes. And unfortunately, he ended up here. So... so he, he, he fellowshiped with us for a couple years, went through our internship program, and four years ago now? Or three years ago? Coming up on four years ago, we sent them out to plant a church uh, down in Gladstone, Oregon. And uh, so that's, that's, that's why Thomas is here. Thomas is a co-elder uh, with Trevor down at the Table Church. And so we're delighted to hear our brother open God's word to us and, re- and remind us of the call to continue to plant churches even here in Portland, Oregon. So welcome our brother, Thomas. Thank you, Matt. I was just admiring your guys' pulpit here. I'd like to take it with me because I notice it has wheels, which means if you don't feel like you're being heard very well, you simply just move in a little closer. (laughs) And, you know, if you begin to see your pastor going up and down the aisle with the pulpit itself, (laughs) take heed, church, you have not been listening very well. Well, I'm super pleased to be with you all here this morning uh, in the middle of the series As you heard Matt say, it's to the ends of the earth. And I'm inviting you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 13. I'm going to give you just a moment to get there into Acts 13. Last week we had, or two weeks ago now, we had uh, Matt Zrest with us sharing. And so it is... A pleasure to come here and exchange torture. So here we go in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Very short section here. uh, Introducing to us this idea of church planting. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Church, would you pray with me? Father, as long as... 
as we have neighbors who do not know you, who do not know about you, who do not know that you are a who, not a what. The gospel has not yet reached the ends of the earth. And so, Father, we pray that this morning, that as we look at your word, that as we look at the context we've been placed in, that you would use your people, that it would be your work, not ours, that you would use us, Father, in spite of us, we ask. Pour out your mercy and grace on us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, it was not in the middle of a church service like this. It was not at the seminary classroom either. It was at my kitchen table circa mm, 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. It was a friend from Portland State University. He sits down at the kitchen table with me. He opens up his Bible and he turns to Ephesians chapter 1 and reads these words to me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Then he pulls back and he says to me and asks, now, do you believe that God set this whole thing up long ago to save you from your sins? That he chose you, that you didn't choose him, at least at first? Now understand, I was a, I was a Christian. I had, I had accepted Jesus. I had asked him to come into my heart. I had uh, prayed many prayers of repentance. I had dedicated my life. I said, I want to follow you, Jesus. And this man sits at my table and boldly asks, do you believe that he chose you? You didn't choose him, at least at first, that it was all set up in advance. I recall looking at him and boldly replying this. Whatever this passage means, it doesn't mean that. Implying what he was saying. (laughs) Time goes on. I begin to wrestle with how change occurs. How does change occur in for a non-believer to become a believer? How does change occur in the Christian as we become more Christ-like? And I begin to wrestle with these things. It was on this uh, questioning and seeking and trying to look at these sort of passages, I began to ask, is transformation for the non-believer to become a believer or a believer to become more like Christ? Is it an outward-inward transformation or is it an inward-outward transformation? It was in the middle of these questions that unbeknownst to me, God was doing an inward-outward transformation. It was through the sheer grace of the gospel that God did this. I thought the gospel was good advice. But from hearing the word preached robustly, I began to see that the gospel was not just good advice, but good news. That I did not have to reach up to God, but God, in fact, had all along been reaching down to me. And he's reaching down to us this morning, church, to you. God did something in me that worked from the very deep inside of me and how I related to him and to others. It went from me saying, whatever this passage means, it doesn't mean that. That I arrived, I figured it out, I achieved God to saying, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. And then I remember thinking, wow, the gospel is not just a doorway that one walks through 
It's not something that you just relegate to the corner of your life. But the gospel ends up not being the doorway, but the foundation and the walls and the paint. It's touching everything as, as a Christian. You can't get away from it. And you, you relish in that. You embrace that. And it was in this midst, I remember thinking to myself, why had this not been clearer to me earlier? Why did I not... I had been going to church regularly. I'd been meeting with other Christians regularly. And yet the gospel had been relegated to a certain corner of my life. It was saved for revivals. It was saved for this uh, other place in my life. It was not the reason that I get up and wake up and face the day. Friends, don't think for one minute that every church in Portland is sharing the gospel clearly. Oh, there are many churches here in Portland that are faithful gospel witnesses. There are, but there are an extreme minority. We need more faithful gospel witnessing churches. Today, yesterday, we are down, church. We are down. It's the fourth quarter. They have the ball. They have the points. But our God is a God of comebacks. Do you believe that? Turning to our passage this morning, it's the very thing that we see the church in Antioch knew and agreed with. Oh, there were actually throughout uh, the empire religious centers in every city. But as far as the gathered church of Christ that was relishing in that gospel grace, there was very few. It was lean. And friends, right now, it is lean. So for the rest of the time, for those of you taking notes, we're going to have a very quick look at Antioch. We're going to have a look at the sending out. And then finally, we'll look at planting churches. So a quick look at Antioch, a look at sending out, and then a look at planting churches. Who is this church at Antioch anyways? I mean, we tend to think of other churches, don't we? When you begin to think about the churches of the New Testament, do you quickly in your mind flow to Antioch? No. You begin to think of other churches like Ephesus, Corinth, Rome. You think of these other places like Philippi. And Antioch, what do we even know of this church? So very little, because we don't have, of course, an epistle to the Antiochians, or I don't know what they'd be called, but... So we begin to look first at Acts chapter 11, where we learn a few things of Antioch. Acts 11 informs us that due to the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem, the believers left out of Jerusalem, and some of them landed in this town of Antioch. And it was there that they preached both to the religious and to the non-religious, And many people heard the good news and believed the report. And they grew in numbers. It was in Antioch that they were first called Christians. And Antioch then is no insignificant place because it was there that they were called this Christianos, meaning Christians, meaning Christ followers. It was the first place that this happened. Paul and Barnabas actually spent a year there and grew in health there and really became a hub of early Christianity. Did you know that three out of four of Paul's missionary journeys began at Antioch? It was a home base. It was a hub. But why is that? Why, why Antioch? Why not other places we know more of, like Ephesus or Corinth? Well, we know from the trajectory of the church history that Antioch was very successful. The historians tell us that the number of Christians in Antioch by the mid-third century are over a hundred thousand. So rewind back 
You can see the, the church grew rather quickly and was a place of health. Where they were placed in the Roman Empire meant that the finances were well, that they were well suited. They were a hub for the Roman Empire, which actually meant that they were able to function somewhat as a hub for the church as well. It was a home base. And not only were they successful with their hands and feet and with numbers, etc., but they also were theologically rich. Did you catch in verse 1 who they had batting on their team? Did you see that? No, it was not Rob Bell, but look at verse uh, 1 there. It is prophets and teachers. It's Barnabas. It's Simeon, Lucius, Manaean. We find these names here that are not insignificant. Did you know that many believe Barnabas may have been the one who authored the book of Hebrews? And Paul himself, of course, authors over 30, or about 30%, we believe, of the New Testament. This church, from its earliest days, had so much going for it. The temptation to like just bed down in Antioch, just hang out here, would have been so tempting. It would have been so strong. They could have thought to themselves, hey, we've got numbers, we're seeing true repentance, we've got Paul, we've got Barney, we are good to go. We don't need to do anything, we just chill here. But we'll see in verse 2, God will not let them settle down. God will not let them chill out. Look at verse 2. While they were, catch this, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. (laughs) Some of you who were able to make it to the Christmas Eve candlelight service, I know the roads were icy, so many did not make it, but for those of you who went this year or have gone in years past, you know how it works, right? They they start with one candle and they go and they begin to light um, other candles candles that have not yet been lit until all the candles in the room have been lit and you begin to sing joy to the world and this is perhaps a silly and overused illustration but this is how it works in life and with churches one person already has a lit candle and moves to somebody who is not yet lit who has not yet tasted of God's goodness they're sent perhaps just a few feet away to light the other candle Or up an aisle or over in a row. But what happens is, you were once unlit, but now you are lit. Do you see how this happens, church? Some of you here are lit candles. And many of us here have have not been lit, weren't lit. And somebody moved towards us. This is how Jesus is always moving. He's always moving towards. God used a lit candle in your life to move move towards you and to touch your life so that you could see the truth, so that you could taste and see that the Lord is good, so that you would know just how low and dark you really were, and yet how full of grace and full of light and mercy he is. And the truth is, if we struggle in this realm to want to move, we have our candle lit, but we're struggling to want to move, we have to ask ourselves, church, if we're really lit at all, or if we are just a dimly lit wick, if we're smoldering, perhaps. And if we find ourselves in that spot, what do we do? Well, we we just simply cry out to him. We say, Father, fan me into flame until I have the gospel motivation to move. Perhaps it's across the world or just to introduce yourself to your next door neighbor but until he's given us that gospel motivation to do so and remember that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish I would surmise that if left on our own we would never reach across the aisle if we were left on our own we'd never reach across the road or across the town but God himself was prompting 
Unless God himself was reaching down to us, we would never do so. See, while they were here worshiping the Lord and fasting, and this brings up a a point of where we must be. We must be dwelling in worshiping and prayer so that God can use the Spirit to speak into our lives. Friends, we have to be so careful. I think in the... uh, uh, name of avoiding hypercharismania, we can be tempted to ignore the promptings of and callings from God. God is still calling people and setting people apart and setting them out to go. And it might be through a passing comment from a friend. It might be from the situations that you find in your life that God is stirring you up to something. Or it may be just from the very direct, plain, and clear teaching of Scripture. But God is still calling people. It's the very pattern we see again and again in the book of Acts to the apostles is that the Spirit speaks and they move. The Spirit speaks and they move. It's what drove Trevor and I to start the table church. Friends, you look at this church body here and you, you might be, you know, we, this is a blessed place. And we're tempted to think that this place has just sort of existed for time immemorial. But this church has not always been here. This church was planted because guys like Chris Taylor or Matt Cunningham and others, some of you sitting right here, you guys sacrificed clout and energy and finances and time to plant this church. You were moved from sometimes positions of uncomfortability. Not all church plants begin with just outrageous bursting joy. Sometimes it comes out of sadness, sometimes out of hardships and suffering and pain. But the Spirit spoke and you moved. The Spirit spoke. And you moved. Which, for the apostles, for us, and many others, it means a situation in times of sadness, uncomfortability. It means for us sometimes doing the hardest thing that we could ever do in our walk with the body of Christ. Saying goodbye to others. Every church planted, every missionary sent out, every church that was revitalized involved some form or another of saying goodbye. The end of book, or not the end of the book, but the end of chapter 20 of Acts, Paul says to the church of Ephesus that he was about to leave. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much, listen, when Paul's about to leave, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul. They kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship, saying goodbye for the sake of the gospel. Could you imagine you and your community group? Could you imagine you with your a discipleship group with the ones you laugh with here on a Sunday afternoon or enjoy a barbecue meal with saying goodbye for the sake of the gospel. Saying, I'm, I'm sorry, I love you, but I'm going down the road to plant a church somewhere or I'm going to go join a struggling church or I see this church looking to be revitalized and I'm going to partake in that. Gathering church, would you listen this year for God to maybe speak in your life to call you to do something like that. So as we turn from the health and the success of Antioch, and we see Paul and Barnabas being set apart to go, now we're turning to this idea of planting churches. 
looking at planting churches. Now, here's the problem. And I feel like I was somewhat set up asking to come preach to you about planting churches is this. Planting church, the, the topic of church plants in the Bible is kind of like church discipline or the Trinity. It's kind of nowhere and yet everywhere, isn't it? You won't find a chapter in Matthew. You're not going to find a chapter in the book of Romans that will say, here's what you do. Start like this. Step A. Step B. And here's what you do. You do this. You do this. You do this. But actually what we find is, as we look throughout the Bible, is it is, it is assumed. The Lord assumes and the apostles assume that the nature of church planning is bound up with many of the other indicatives that we see in Scripture. We only need to think and consider Severin's message from last week in Matthew 28. We were called to make disciples. This assumes that new disciples have a community of faith to belong to, doesn't it? That's the assumption. If you're going to make a disciple and you're going to meet with them weekly, it assumes that you have a body of brothers and sisters of Christ that you can bring in and and say, this is how we repent. This is how we live life together. This is how we function in, in open grace and humility with one another. You have to have that body of believers to do that. So it, it assumes there's a church, which also assumes that the church had been at one point planted, that it began, that it started. And we think at this time, it also assumes that in a multi-ethnic and diverse locations where various churches of various ages to reach a diverse group, such as we are here in Portland with different languages and culture, it assumes that we need many churches And finally, it assumes in the case study of Paul and Barnabas that they actually left. They left home base, they left Antioch, they left the mothership, so to speak. And they did. Look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And what a glorious sending this was. They had no idea what God was going to do. They had no clue what was ahead of them. They, They go off to Cyprus later from Antioch to Tarsus and Derby and Lystra, still later from Antioch on, the, on another missionary journey to Tarsus. Eventually, of course, Ephesus is bound up with this and included, as well as many other places that Paul plants these churches. And we know of at least 14 churches that Paul plants over the course of 13 years. Paul did this, and he had no example. He had no church planting manual. He had no yearly conferences to go to. Very little money, almost no resources in hands. He just trusts the Lord and he goes. But church, he had God going before him, didn't he? He had God working with him. And so then while one ought to be cautious about using Acts as a guide for exactly how churches should conduct themselves in all things, I think this is true, we can think, I think we can see from the, uh, the epistles and from the book of Acts that the normal, programmatic, and universal example is churches planting churches. So the question is raised, and this is a good question. Perhaps it's on your mind this morning. You ask yourself this. With so many churches in Portland, why start more? Especially if we could pour resources and people into what's already going on. Why, why should we go about starting new churches? I think that we should, in fact, pour more time and money and resources into the churches that are here in Portland. I do. I do agree with that. But I also think we should put an and to that. That we should do that and plant churches. 
And I think next week you're going to hear more as we discuss going to the ends of the earth, what that looks like to revitalize a church. But to answer this question of why should we plant, why should we start from scratch new churches, one can almost not discuss the modern act of church planting without looking at the work of Tim Keller in his prolific uh, endeavor of church planting. He says, and this is important, I hope you would catch this. He says, the vigorous continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for numerical growth in the body of Christ in a city. Uh, number two, he says the continual corporate renewal and revival of existing churches in a city, nothing else, not crusades, not outreach programs, not parachurch ministries, not growing megachurches, nor congregational consult- consulting will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planning. This is an eyebrow-raising statement. But to those who have done any study at all, he says, it's not even controversial. It's just assumed if you've looked at the, at the studies, you say the number one way to reach new people with, for the body of Christ to add to the kingdom of God is by planting churches. Consider this, that missiologists have done many work in this realm, and on a per capita basis, new churches reach far more than established larger churches. Further, if one takes into the account the number of churches currently being planted in the metro Portland area right now, compared with the influx of the new residents coming into Portland right now as we speak, over 80 a day, we are down. This is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 people added every year right now to Portland. Assuming that some of them are Christians, where are they fellowshipping? Assuming that most of them are probably not Christians, how many of these churches in Portland that are actually on mission, living for the gospel kingdom, are actually pursuing these new people coming? The numbers are down, church. Our God is a God of comebacks. Further, the average new church gains most of its new members, 60 to 80% for a church plant, from the ranks of people who are not attending or worshiping any, at any church body. And we've experienced this at our church more recently. And over uh, churches that are over 10 to 15 years of age gain 80 to 90% of new members by transfer from other congregations. And that is not to say that established congregations you know, are doing anything wrong. In fact, there's a good reasons why we need established congregations, but there's also great reasons why we need to continue to plant. So we revitalize and we strengthen established churches and we have those churches, those Antiochs, go out and plant more churches. Question, gathering church, what... What does it mean for this church here and now? For those of you, again, who are taking notes, I want to give you six ways this could affect the gathering church in 2018. And I'm going to stress could to avoid stoning. (laughs) Number one, prayer. It's obvious, isn't it? But probably so obvious, it's overlooked. Uh, Do you have a weekly rotation for your family of churches that you are praying for? Do you have church plants on that list? Are you praying weekly for not only the gathering and Henson and other churches, but are you praying for the table church? It's probably so obvious, it's easily overlooked. Uh, Number two, sending some to partner with. As in saying goodbye for the sake of the kingdom. As in saying, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm moving down the road, 15 minutes down the road to the table church to support their church plant effort. Number three, visit. Once a year, 
your family, and I don't think Matt or the other elders here would bemoan this at all. Once a year, you could visit Selwood Baptist or you could visit the Table Church so that you are just simply reminded that God is at work outside of these four walls. So that our church and other churches could be reminded that we have sister churches that we are on mission with. The gospel of the kingdom of God is much bigger than what we see sometimes in our own little circles. Number four, finances. This church helps financially support church plants, which means this church body, listen to this, this church body has decided it is really important to invest its resources in a way that will not directly bless this church but will be part in growing numerically the kingdom of God. And I'm not here to pat the gathering church on the back, but I am here this morning to commend you, church, in this regard. To say, well done. Continue. And number five, be challenged not to settle into idolatrous comfort. One of the great benefits of a church plant, if a church plant is sent out by a mother church, if, if church plants head out of Antioch and go to other places, what happens is, it's a, it can become a somewhat of a symbiotic relationship that the church plant challenges the mother church to consider how they are on mission, to consider how they are functioning and living. It's a, and the, and the uh, mother church gets to support and continue to bless and encourage and give wisdom to the daughter church. So don't settle. Lastly, and this is perhaps most scary for you, consider in 2018... Will God call some of you here to leave a few miles and go up the road or down the road, east or west, to plant a church? Could God call a few of you out to plant a church this year? It would involve you praying. It would involve you fasting and sitting before the Lord and listening for his call. Charles Spurgeon urged his congregation to consider these things. In one sermon, he says, we encourage our members to leave us and to found other churches. No, actually, we actually seek to persuade them to do it. We ask them to scatter throughout the land to become goodly seed, which God shall bless. I believe so long that as we do this, we shall prosper. In other words, Spurgeon felt the very, um, the very uh, prospering of his church was bound up with his own church sending out and planting other churches. And I believe if Spurgeon was here this morning, he would tell you the same. I could picture the gathering church as you guys begin to settle and, and what a, um, we, we are uh, blessing and praising God for what he's doing, uh, moving you guys into a formal building at Lentz. And I, in my mind's eye, I could picture uh, the gathering church continuing to grow numerically, filling every seat in that building, and oh, praise God. But church, would you also be a church that has a mind's eye that's looking out, saying not just to be a a hub, not just to be an Antioch of growth, but to be a place of growth and sending. That's why we sing, let the nations be glad. As your holy church goes forth in the Holy Spirit's power with the glories of the gospel to explain, now we pray your kingdom come and we pray your will be done for the honor and glory of your name. Planting churches is part of celebrating and displaying the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. Church, I'm going to close on a bit of a bummer. Now, you're not supposed to do this in a sermon. You're supposed to end on a high note. You're supposed to end, you know, with a a good tale that ends well. But I'm going to end on a bit of a bummer. One thing about church planting is that it magnifies our weakness. 
One major thing I've discovered, just personally, if I can share with you all, is it magnifies our weakness. I think Matt and others here will testify to this. I'm not entirely sure about the gathering situation, but when Trevor and I went, uh, by God's grace, to start the table church, I left not only my home church, I left my job. I left with, we left with nobody, really. Just a few, just a small, small handful. We didn't have a team of 50 people joining us. We had no building. We weren't even sure where we were going to meet. I had a baby on the way. I was jobless, churchless, peopleless. I was weak. I recall in complete humility, uh, I knocked on Trevor's door and his wife wrote out a check to me so that I could go get groceries to feed my family that week. Weakness, not strength and power. Weakness, we had no food, we had no jobs, our pets' heads were falling off. But by God's grace, he provided... By God's grace, he did a work, not because of the trickery of man, nor because of really uh, creative advertisement or flashy websites, no. People going from, I earned my way, I figured this out, I've arrived, to nothing in my hands I bring, just simply to the cross I cling. Weakness is magnified in church planting. I love this song. I'm taking it with me. You guys sang it this morning. You let your kingdom come. Give us your strength, O God, and courage to speak, to perform your wondrous deeds through, catch that line, those who are weak. Lord, use us as you want, whatever the test. By God's grace, we'll preach your gospel until our dying breath. Awesome. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness, Second Corinthians chapter 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans chapter 5. This is the single message we proclaim. It's why we plant churches, so that others would hear this, so that others would see the gospel message of the righteous for the unrighteous. It's the very thing that the rest of chapter 13 flushes out, where Paul begins to go, and he stands before the religious people, and motioning with his hands, he starts with Moses, and he works himself through the Old Testament, and he shows how, guess what? Our works have have left us dead in our sins and trespasses. And the law was powerless to do what the glories of Christ could do in the gospel. His body broken, his flesh on that cross torn apart for you and I. It's why we're willing to sacrifice and give up. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you and we want to glorify and magnify your name in costly ways, yes, Lord, but we also pray that you would make yourself known, that you would reveal your glory and your goodness and your kindness to us. Shine your face upon us, we ask. Lord, we thank you for healthy churches. We thank you for the work that you've called us to do in which we sit back and we can say honestly, it was not us, but it was you. Would this year be a year you would continue to encourage us to go to the ends of the earth, Father? That you would call us out. Whether it's simply a family member to speak your gospel to or whether it's 
a church to move to or a nation to move to. Would you call us to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. So we're going to do something here for a moment as we would consider how the Holy Spirit would have us respond. God speaks to us through his word. And missionaries and church planters and church revitalizers are called through the preaching of his word. And as Thomas was speaking to us, uh, the word that I got was to remind us that we, we bought 400 chairs for Lent and we're not buying anymore. And we have a sign that says we meet at 10 a.m. And we're not adding another service. So as that church grows, God is going to call us and he's going to push some of us out to help revitalize churches, to help plant churches, and to send us overseas and around the world to proclaim the gospel. So I want to spend a few moments just reflecting on how God would have you respond to his perfect and holy word that was preached to us this morning. Amen. Again, as we were praying just now, the sense I got from the Holy Spirit is that there are people here this morning that that God is stirring in your heart to either go help the table church or to go help Selwood or to plant a church yourself or even calling you to be an overseas missionary. I encourage you to respond by coming and talking to the elders after church or, or talking with Thomas here. And now we transition to a time to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ as we come to the Lord's table. The table is open for all who have repented of their sins, been baptized. If that describes you and you're joining us from another church and you're welcome to to partake of the table with us, we can come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat, and I'll come back up in a few moments and we'll we'll partake of of the elements corporately.